know our speaker who opens for us tonight, and we've kind of talked today, and I've seen the faces and the comments as uh, you, our church folks, have come in and greeted him, and um, we certainly appreciate. He is family. We talked about that. He feels like this is home when he comes here, and uh, they look forward to it every year. And uh, his wife is uh, on the way in. She should be here, Lord willing, tonight. She is in now. Okay, woo. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, um, we look forward to having the braces with us over the weekend. And um, he, gave, he gave a great challenge today at Wayne Christian School and was very thankful for the message he brought to those young people. And uh, look forward to what God has laid on his heart to bring to us tonight. Would you please give your undivided attention and ask the Lord to remove any distractions from our midst and that we might sit at the foot of the cross today in the teaching of the Holy Spirit as he works through Simon Brace, tonight's speaker. Simon, if you would, please. Thank you. Yeah, y'all can clap, you know. We, we... <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, whilst this machine is doing its thing, I just... Uh, Make sure we got a sound check. Can everybody hear me? Fantastic. Well, I recognize many faces here, and like uh, um, Jeremy said, that coming here now, we've been coming here for a number of years, it's like coming to visit family for the weekend, and we love staying at the Harrisons, and they have to put up with us for the weekend, and um, it's a real blessing to visit this church and to see how you've um, continued uh, to, with the work of the Lord in this part of uh, North Carolina and how you've uh, continued with uh, uh, the Apologetics Conference. Um, and so hopefully this weekend, uh, you will all learn some more information. Apologetics is that discipline which, uh, unfortunately, uh, the territory comes with uh, you have to learn. You have to use your mind. And part of my talk this morning at Wayne Christian School was saying, look, if you're not interested in having your mind transformed, you're not going to be interested in apologetics because it's the kind of thing which forces you or ought to compel you to study and to learn. And so um, that was my challenge this, uh, this morning at the school to talk about uh, the transformation in Romans 12 too. Now, as they cue this up, um, uh, I'll give you just a little preliminary to uh, the background to this, um, uh, this uh, the talk that I'm going to do because... This, this, this sermon starts with a very, hopefully if we get it started, a very epic video, okay, which I'm hoping will work. If not, you'll have to see how creative I really am at public speaking and trying to create this image in your head, but hopefully we can get this thing launched here. Um, but basically, the, the background to this uh, particular sermon is as a result of my musings upon the, um, the condition of the church today. Um, uh, whether that's both here in the U United States or overseas. And uh, what I have to say this evening hopefully will get us all just to pay a bit more attention to what's going on in the church. And if we see that there's problems, things that we can do personally um, to not fall foul of some of these problems. Um, and so uh, if, we're, if, if we're ready, if we can just hold it for a few seconds, I want to ask you this question. Are there any Bereans in this house? There ought to be some yeses to that. What were the Bereans commended for? You see, it's a small group. We can be interactive. What are the Bereans commended for? They didn't just listen. They checked it out. Boy, is that a quality and a virtue that we miss in our churches today. I think a lot of them think that they're doing that, but I don't think that's the case. So let's run this video now. Hopefully it will work. And you can turn up the volume and let's uh, give it its... Uh, Hopefully we have some sound. We had sound earlier on. Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, so this video, if you can watch it from completely, and is a very rousing video, as you can feel the, the energy of the music. But aren't there some magnificent things said about God? Isn't it, isn't it just grip you just to weigh what is being said in that video? And I, I cannot help but be swept up with the dramatic voice and the visuals. Um, but what captivates me most is what is the magnificent things said about um, God. And so when I, when I listen to a video like that or something that, of that kind of genre, what I want to do is I, I, I want to rush out and declare how great God is to this culture and to this world, the God of Daniel. Unfortunately, the reality is all we know is that despite these glorious truths that are declared about the God of the Bible, when we leave the doors of the church and when we attempt to tell this generation of the God of all gods, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that it does not take too long before the enthusiasm that we have becomes consumed or quenched. Even before we open our mouths, we are attacked. One of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture is uh, 1 John 5.19, which, which declares, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Because we live in enemy territory. And so, opening your mouth and talking about this God of whom this video is declaring um, is a difficult thing. 
And if you're not sure how difficult it is to talk about that, then just walk out these doors and start talking about that God in the culture in which we live. And you'll soon find out whether you're welcome or not. And so, analogous to, to this sort of epic drama, I, I, are those of you who've seen the opening scenes to Saving Private Ryan? Who's seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, okay. When those uh, military boats are, are coming up upon the beach and those guys are standing in those, uh, I forget what they called them, to, to these beach landing craft, you know, you're, you're pretty much stuck like fish in a barrel because you're stuck in a piece of steel and the German machine gunner has got, already got the bead on you and when the front of that gate opens, you just better hope he hasn't picked your boat because he's going to empty that machine gun into a steel bin in which you're standing. And that's what it's like when you leave the doors. You can't even open your mouth. The, one, the moment you start to speak, you don't even get a chance in the culture in which we live in to raise your gun to shoot back before you're shouted down or attacked or whatever the, it, with respect to Christianity. It is open season on the Christian face. It's just a hail of bullets. Social media, in the claims of other religions, you know, everything seems to be more plausible except the historic Christian faith, you know. We can, we can love on the Eastern religions and we dare not say anything too critical of Islam, but it's open season on the Christian faith. In the moral decadence of society, we see these attacks. In the philosophies of our age, in the exploitation of women, in the poisonous ideas in many theology departments, and even, dare I say it, in the anti-intellectualism of our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Ouch. Have I said something critical of the church? Yeah, you heard me correctly. Charles Malik, in an address that he gave at Wheaton College in 1980, said this. He said, the greatest, the greatest challenge... Facing the church in the West today is the danger of anti-intellectualism. And Billy Graham was sitting in the front pew with the Wheaton professors and none of them were listening to what he's saying. Because we live in an age now where you can't just preach the gospel in the way that it was done in the 1950s and 60s. It's a rather sad state of affairs. I know the people at Billy Graham and they recently had an effort to try and do his kind of last salvo. Unfortunately, it didn't have the effect that the kinds of things he used to do happened generations ago. Now the Lord has used that man tremendously. Many people might have even been saved as a result of Billy Graham's ministry. But things change, times change, and Satan changes the ways in which he grips us. And we need to arouse ourselves from our slumbers with respect to these things and understand the age in which we live and how we can prepare ourselves for that battle. The God of our age declares that we should not force our views, values, or beliefs on anyone as they make this intellectually constipated claim. Of course, so long as they're forcing their views on us, it's fine, but we're not allowed to force views on our views on them. Any idea except that of Christ crucified for the sin of mankind is welcome at the table. The battle has made all the more difficult for it. It has lulled so many Christians into a state of apathy and sloth. Jeremy and I were discussing this today. Whew. Apathy. My word. I think it was Plato who said, he said something along these lines. He says, because when I'm trying to talk to people about apathy, how do you move somebody who's apathetic? It's very difficult, isn't it? Plato said this. He said, the price of apathy in civil affairs is to be ruled by evil men. Think about that. That's a pagan saying that. The price of apathy is to be ruled by evil men. That is a sobering statement if ever I've heard one. What about sloth? Well, the classical understanding of sloth, this vice which the Bible warns us, is not just being lazy like a teenager who doesn't want to pick his underpants up off the carpet. Okay? Sloth is lacking, traditionally understood, is lacking the virtue to go through something that is difficult. Do you think the American culture suffers from that? 
You think the church suffers from that? That means you lack the fortitude to go through difficult things. And I say this as a person, okay, who once lived under apartheid in South Africa. Okay? A political system in South Africa in which we segregated people on the basis of the color of their skin. I know very well what ideological apathy is and sloth looks like. When I reflect upon apartheid, I often wonder how so many of us could have been so complacent for so long about the injustice that was going on in that country. Now please remember that South Africa has a rich Christian heritage. And so I'm not just saying this of non-Christian South Africans. I'm saying this of Christian-speaking South Africans. White Christian-speaking South Africans. Who stood by and were silent. I often wonder how it is that so many Germans, so many Nazis could have just gone along with things. Entire German population to put up with the stuff that they did to the Jews and the few Germans that stood up against them. I suspect every generation suffers from some pride of thinking that they will never be susceptible to the kind of scale of evil seen in generations before them. I think every generation thinks that. They look back at history and think, gee whiz, those people were real bad. And can never, never think to themselves that, that this could be us. I think every generation suffers from that pride. It was only fairly recently in, in America that the civil rights battle came to an end, although some would maybe dis, dispute with me, that, but there's still some battles on that front prior to that slavery. But as far as South Africa is the case, and there's still hangovers with respect to apartheid. Well, what about this generation? Well, there are a number of issues worth mentioning. Let me just mention two to arouse us from our slumbers about things that should be of concern to us that I hope that you and I are not going to be silent about, even if it means confronting our own brothers and sisters in the church. Number one, the loss of every former Christian academic institution in this country that was started by Christians. That is a tragedy that is staggering when you think about it. That Christians built the greatest academic institutions and basically just handed them over to the secularists without as much as a, a fight. We didn't even have a paintball fight over it. It's just like, there we go. Help yourselves. There's the Ivy League schools that we started. Thank you very much. We'll go and start some little Bible college in, in the mountains of West Virginia somewhere. Christianity was the intellectual powerhouse that had alongside it the gospels of the, the, the ideas of Christ, not only to redeem and save men, but to correct the way they thought about things. The loss, the loss of the academy, in my estimation, is as a result of the atrophy of the Christian mind. What's the second issue? Well... If you think slavery and that kind of thing have been bad, and you only bring your mind to something that's obvious to probably, I take many of you, since I know a lot of you, the issue of, of, of abortion. Millions of babies in this country. And perhaps this might be the greatest injustice in this country, in the history of this country. <coughs> Millions of babies are being slaughtered with the toll heaviest amongst the African Americans and thousands sit by and idly put up or swallow with the sophistry of the post-abortionists who are marvelous at sanitizing the language and softening the medical reality of abortion. That's why they don't like you to take pictures to abortion clinics, man. Why? Because they don't want you to see what it's really all about. They don't want you to see a, de they want you to see a delimbed little carcass. You get furious. Go on YouTube. Watch it when these people are trying to stand up to abortion. Kids put pictures up. People walk past and they kick the pictures down. They get the, why are they, what's with that? It says something about their conscience. Well, you might think to yourself, well, Christians haven't been susceptible to this kind of nonsense. 
Well, up until the late 1970s, large swathes of the Protestant community held to a pro-choice view. Indeed, this was the position of the Southern Baptist Convention up until the late 1970s. Ouch! Can you believe that? That's extraordinary. Something's going on. What's wrong with us? That our minds have become so diseased that we can't even see as Protestants up until the late 1970s that there was a problem with abortion. Now I'm saying this in light of being somebody who lived under apartheid and, and when we didn't speak up, why? Because we just, we just went with the flow, man. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. On this score, we, in, 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 we have to tip our hats to our Catholic brothers and sisters for protesting because for the most part on this issue, they've been leading, leading on this front. That being said, there are still thousands of Catholics who, like Protestants, profess to a pro-choice sort of choice view. I believe that this, this, this nation, this generation, will look back upon abortion and think to themselves, as many white South Africans now think of apartheid, or Germans perhaps have not, and think of this time of the great evil of abortion, the slaughtering of innocent children for some kind of pragmatic end, or some kind of ultimately last-ditch contraception. The issues are certainly different, and I don't want to say that there is... And, you know, Nazism is the same as abortion, although I think that there are some philosophies behind these things that drive this, a sort of eugenics kind of movement. There's a philosophy there that is shared. Um, but my point is I'm focusing here on this sort of uh, facile attitude of complacency and apathy, which, doesn't, which isn't moved to do anything, which pays lip service to evil. I believe it was Edmund Burke who said, he was correct when he said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. For pastors not to tell their congregations the truth, to confront them, to speak the truth, even if it means that there's some trouble for them. Instead of pandering to our churches, and giving them their staple diet of meat and potatoes, Christianity and why? Because that's what they've been feeding. That's what they've been fed for the last century. And so I dare not change it because if I have to add something new to the menu, they're going to freak out. That's happening in conservative churches as well. Believe you me. It's not just whether amongst our Christian crazy brothers of which there are no shortage of those around either. Christians are often part of this complacency. With this propensity of the mind and the condition of the culture in mind, let us turn our attention to the church as it attempts to reach this generation. As we consider the question of how do we reach this generation? Because that's what the church wants to do. It wants to reach the generation in which we live. If one takes the time to visit various churches and various denominations, one will quickly discover that there is a grand diversity within the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with diversity. There can, of course, be unity in diversity. Unity is not the same as unanimity. Unanimity is when everyone is in agreement with everything. Some of this diversity has its roots in historical events, and some of this diversity is as a result of theological differences. Sadly, some of this diversity in the church is attributable to less than noble events. So people have split, I've heard it said, over, you know, carpets in the church and ridiculous stuff like that. That's rather sad. Some diversity may also be attributed to the changing of the times and the ages in which we live. However, there are some changes that we see within the church that are clearly motivated by the church's attempt to condition themselves in such a manner so as to appeal to the generation that they are attempting to reach. Here, I, here again, I think that the church should be mindful of the age in which it lives 
And certainly we do, we, do, we do find biblical precedent for doing so. We ought to be able to reach our community and there is a context and a culture in which this happens. These things have to be appreciated and understood and at some level integrated into the church. There is, however, something that seems to be lurking behind the motivation to reach our generation that I would like to tease out of the cave this evening so we can examine our practices and how we do this. Orthodoxy concerns itself with correct theological ideas. Orthopraxy is how we often practice or live out those ideas in our Christian community. And we can study these ideas and, uh, and certainly this has to be done. But as we take a look at the practices in the church in order to offer a critique, we can say this, that whatever we do is often a function of our theology. Okay? Everything that you do, I think ultimately, is a function of your theology. That is, what you think about God who you think Jesus is, what the salva- his salvation means to you, how you understand man and what he is about, and how that all fits together as you go out to engage the culture. So how you do church is ultimately a function, I think, of your theology. One of the assumptions behind the stat strategy to reach our generation is rather simple. It is foolish to think that we can reach folks when everything that we do in the church is completely disconnected from the age in which we find ourselves. Okay. So if we completely never use technology or never, you know, use a microphone or we that's that's just that's that's absurd, okay? Of course we need to do that. Employ these things. Not be completely disconnected. You know, if I was to show up here you know, wearing a loincloth, like a caveman. You might think it bizarre. I mean, it's, you know, that would just be strange. And I'm not talking about if I was to show up here as a guy from Africa, because you might have some concessions there. But I'm, I think it just, that serves to make the point, I think, that we don't need complete, completely disconnected. I mean, if I showed up here with a huge afro, you'd think, is this kid living in the 70s? Okay, now, I wish I could grow an afro because I'm balding and I can't do that anymore. But just, just for the sake of argument, say that I could, you know. So that's what I'm sort of talking about. You see the culture doing this, you know. Good theology, that is good teaching that comes from God, is not only something that should satisfy the soul, it is something that should also reach people and change their lives regardless of the culture and context. To this we would all have to say, Amen. With this philosophy of ministry and um, Many churches across the world have embarked on some radical changes in order to make themselves and the message which they preach appealing to this world. Now this, too, this idea, I think, can be some sand from scriptures. I think we find precedent for the strategy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. And a number of other places in scriptures. It says this, For though I am free... Uh, from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became one as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not that being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I, ha- I might have some. I think that that's a foundational verse for cross-cultural studies. You know, how, how to be mindful of the culture in which you live so that you're not just completely disconnected from them and then there's just a failure to communicate. So I don't want to be draconian in my views of what the church needs to look like. I'm mindful of that. There are some churches that resist this change. You know, They can be stuck in a particular time or poor time zone. And so sometimes the failure on on their part to adapt, is partly the reason for some of their anemic efforts to reach this generation. Nevertheless, it can be certainly said that some of these changes have led to all manner of bizarrity within the church. Where you look at some of the stuff that's going on in the church today and you go, look, I appreciate the efforts to try and reach the culture, but what on earth is that all about? And all you need to do is just look around you, man, 
there are some crazy things going on in our church. Nothing is more bizarre to me than a 40-year-old man like myself who thinks that yelling and spiking his hair into a ridge and squashing his fat body into, into skinny jeans in order to reach this generation can be taken to be a good move to reach this generation. Now, I don't know what it is with skinny jeans, okay? This is a point of comedy at times for me. Now, with respect to fashion, and the, I understand that clothing communicates, okay? And I'm the worst fashion consultant that exists. You need to speak to Gilnick, the guy, the young guy speaks to. He's very suave with his, he, you know, he works at, he's worked at these stores, so he knows how to dress. But I understand that. But I think you know what I'm getting at here now. I mean, what is the guy trying to do? Does he think peroxide in his hair is a way to reach people for Jesus? I mean, I, I, I understand, but I'm thinking, well, hang on a sec, there's something going on here. You know? My wife was there, she could assure you. Now, on fashion, I have to tread carefully because my wife will tell you, I'm the last person to be talking to you about fashion. Anyway, that's just some of my insights there where some of these things begin. Thankfully, my hair is falling out at a rapid rate, and so I'm going to miss gelling my hair in the ridge fiasco, okay? But I think that we need to, we need to think about this, you know? And the prospect of wearing skinny jeans is an uncomfortable prospect anyway, so I want to abandon that whole idea. Okay. It's, it's nuts. What, what, what are these guys doing? I mean, why torture yourself with that? It's so popular in these churches. What, what are these guys doing? I want to say to you, you're 40 years old. What are you doing? The kids think you're nuts. You're not cool. And they think they're so cool. I know you're not. You're a comedy. And they know it. That's why they'll only sit in the youth sessions for 15 minutes to listen to you. Why? Because you're not cool. My goodness me. Now, I understand that there's cultural things that are important and significant. If you travel to Italy, for example, and you get introduced in an Italian event, you have to kiss another guy on the side of the cheek twice. And there's this cross-cultural thing, which is uncomfortable for you Americans. But I come from British stock, you know. I, I, I'm still getting used to the token American shake the hand and hug. Even the hug is a violation of my space. I'm more used to the, you know, the gentleman, good evening, good afternoon, sir, thank you very much. Yeah, I shook your hand. What's with the hug thing? You know? That's... So I understand these things. And I understand these cultural things. But when we look at the church now, I'm thinking to myself, no, there, there's something else poisonous going on. This is beyond this kind of stuff now. You know? There's something there that's bothering me about it. And, I, and I've been... It was gnawing at me for months on end, which is the reason why I've wrote this, this diatribe out, if you could call it that. Now, some of this is said in jest, but in our current age of metrosexual men who are trying to busy themselves with accessorizing, I think that we ought to consider the mandate of becoming all things to all men. Because Paul is onto something here. So I think there's a principle there that we need to weigh. But let us... Be Bereans. Let's think about what we're doing now. Okay? Let's think about this. Churches are reviewing just about everything uh, as they understand, and there are many means by which we can communicate to folks to let them know that we are part of the generation. Chief amongst the practices in the Protestant today is the worship. Man, this is like, for them, this is like the portal into the, into the sanctuary of God. The worship, man, the billions of dollars spent on worship and worship teams. And I'm talking about the music because, of course, worship correctly understood, as we all know, is what? Our entire being serving God. So I'm focusing more on the, the form of the music in the church here. Chief practices as worship, yeah. I bet that all Christians at some time in their life have discussed the ongoing saga of the nature and the form of Christian music, both inside and outside the church. Indeed, many churches have divided over this very issue. The buildings we gather into worship in and the art we put inside these all communicate. 
The programs that we offer in our churches communicate. The look of our website communicates. The church notices and bulletins in the absence of one. The structure of the services, worship before or after the sermon. Or corporate, or do we also have solo performances in our worship? The furniture on the platform. Do you have a podium and a lectern, or are you going to be a cool guy and just sit in a stool with a mic? I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen this stuff, man. The manner in which we greet people at the door. The disposition of the leadership in the church. And on and on the list goes. Just about everything we do is at some level communicating something about us. And these things also declare something about the nature of our faith. Pay attention to it. That you might not be found wanting as a Christian. Because I want to be able to stand before Jesus and, and, and say, Lord, you know, I was mindful of those things and I thought about them. There was something there that bothered me. So here then comes a challenge. Is it the case that perhaps we might be guilty of buying into the idea that what has ultimately attracted folks to our church is not the message of the cross, but rather it is the fact that we are a nice bunch of decent folks? Has the church become a club of moralists? That's a question. Yes, we take care of our kids. We are careful with our mouths. We love our community and take care of one another. You should come and join us because we're nice people. I think that that's what's being peddled in large quantities by the church. And it's attractive. And it gets people there. It's the key tool in the Mormon's bag. They're nice people. Why would you not want to join them? I mean, look how nice these chaps are. They want to come and help paint your house. They want to come and do all these things. We should go and join them. Sometimes good, uh, sometimes good churches take care of others who are not in their community. This is certainly to be commended. But do we squash ourselves into skinny jeans or put up fancy lights in our auditorium or have cool artwork in our halls or have catchy names or catchy programs or have coffee shops in our buildings? This is a common practice nowadays. Perhaps because we do not have the courage to admit that the message of the gospel is not as persuasive as we hoped it would be. Let me say that again. Do we do all these things because ultimately we don't want to admit that the gospel isn't as persuasive as we think it is. And so what we think is going to persuade people to come and be Christians is to come and be a part of our stuff that we do. So we've got nice greeting people at the door, or we've got nice church bulletins, or we've got a, I don't know, an entertainment show on the platform of worship that makes the secular world Envious that it's lightsabers and, and everything. Is that what we've got? Is that the faith of Jesus Christ? And all churches are doing this. Well, this is how we reach the generation. Is that, is that it? Because that's, that's the question I'm pressing tonight. Is the reason that the people are doing this Maybe perhaps because they don't under, really understand the nature of the message of salvation and how to communicate that to people. Why could it not be the case that the, that the message itself, detached from all this stuff, is the power unto salvation? If you are somebody who can do exactly what Jeremy was praying for, that you know how to handle the word of truth. Why? Because you know what the gospel's about and you know how to talk about it because you can think. And so you're not contingent upon stuff and programs. I think that a lot of what we see going on in the church today is exhausting. I have met and know a number of pastors who are exhausted 
from the demands of bearing the burden of spontaneity that comes from the task of keeping this great act of communicating the Christian message to all their congregation. These guys get burnt out. I've lost count of the number of guys. Just because it's this whole, it's a circus show. Perhaps in all these efforts, and I want to make sure, I'm not opposed to the idea of a coffee shop in the back of a church. I want you to be clear about that. But amidst all this madness, we need to ask us, do we do these things in order to compensate for our failure to communicate the truth of the Christian message to this generation in a persuasive manner? We've lost the skill of being rhetoricians, rhetoric. We don't even know what that word means anymore. If you listen to Fox News and you listen to Bill O'Reilly and these other guys, they all need to go back and get a lesson in logic because they confuse rhetoric with sophistry. Rhetoric, classically understood, is the skill of persuasion. There's nothing wrong with rhetoric. Jeremy uses it in his preaching all the time. I'm using it now. There's nothing wrong with rhetoric. Sophistry is the illicit use of of trying to persuade people to something. Well, most in the church couldn't even tell you the difference between the two. This frustration that we see in people trying to reach this generation, this panic that they have leads to concessions of all kinds. The church is filled with some of the finest communicators in the world, but my question is communicators of what? Boy, do we have some gifted people. Many Christian leaders firmly believe that they're calling people to the truth of Christianity, but most Christian leaders could not even give you a definition of truth. We preach the truth. Okay, well, what's, what is truth? What is truth? Who asked that question? Pilate. What is truth? Well, it's me. What is truth? Truth is that which corresponds with reality. You know why Christianity is true? It's because the ideas of Christianity correspond to the way things really are. That's why it's true. It's not just true because Jesus is in a manger. Or he's changed your life. It's true beyond your own subjective experience. And it's true not just because you believe it. You'll hear this a lot. The Mormons will say this. We discussed this today. Well, where's your evidence for these ancient tribes that existed in North America? Thousands and thousands of civilizations. Show me one brick from one archaeological site. They don't have one. They don't even, they don't even have one brick to show us. These huge civilizations that were involved in these epic battles. Not one brick. Not one archaeological discovery to confirm these huge civilizations. But when you ask them, what do they say? Well, I take it by faith that it's true. Hmm. So something becomes true because you believe it. How bizarre is that? I believe that... um, Uh, 9-11 didn't happen. Therefore, it didn't happen. You know what's worse? Is when you speak to Christians about their faith, they have the same view of faith that the Mormons have. Why do you believe the Bible? I take it it by faith. So is the Bible true because you have faith in it? Or is the Bible just true independent of whether you believe in it or not? You raise this question most churches today, they're going to think I'm, I'm, I'm doing something crazy. Look, folks, if we're not clear on what biblical faith is, we are in trouble to a generation that is screaming the same question that Pilate is. What is truth? And we don't even know what it is. Man. Hey, man, but we've got a cool light show. Hey, and I've got a really cool... So I can relate to you, because you see my tattoos? Woo! 
Folks, there's only a few people here tonight, okay? And you know what? I don't care if there were three of you. I'd rather have three people that are actually going to listen and try and say, Simon, you know, we, we, need to, we really need to start using our minds for the Lord. We really need to start thinking about these things. I'd rather have three people willing to do that than 3,000, I don't know, people just sitting there with, their, with no brains. Just, well, you know, I love the Lord. Man. Lord, please. Rescue me from apathy. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be, and I don't want my kids to be like that. I don't want to be the parent that stands in front of another young man, like the parents I speak to, and breaks down and starts crying to me, fathers included, because their daughter went to NC State to become an engineer, and they spent $120,000, and they come back home, and they've lost their faith. I have spoken to so many parents here, just in North Carolina alone, weeping, about the faith of the faith of their children. And then they want me to come along as if I'm some kind of magician and have a 15-minute conversation with a kid and fix it. Because I'm Mr. Apologist. Hey, man, but you go back to your church and you know what you're going to get? You're going to get meat and potatoes, man. Good old gospel sermon. Whatever that is. Gee whiz, I got asked to preach that at a church one time. I was like, what is that? A good... You know what I preached on that weekend? You know what the title of the sermon was? Cowards in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, man. We, we, mania, we lament the fact that we're seeing our generation lost in the academy, the schools which we started, and then we sit around like a bunch of fools and we just go, well, that's a terrible thing, you know? We are culpable. We are culpable for that. Those are our kids. And we have taught them a theology in the church, which is what? It's deficient. Why? Because it's not surviving there in the real life. We've assumed that our theology as Protestants is good, that it's, it's, it's the real gospel. It's not tainted like the Catholic message, you know, workspace and all this no, our theology might well be deficient. We have to stop having an overinflated view of our efforts. Who's winning the battle in the culture today? The LGBT. Look, I mean, look at the look at the success. Who's who know, who who knows how to persuade? They have mastered the art of rhetoric. We haven't even told our kids what the difference between rhetoric and sophistry is. So we can't distinguish when they're out there saying, hang on, no, these these people, these gay people, that's sophistry. And you know what? You're wrong. And you know what? Christ died for you, and He can save you. And these things of which you're a part of are ultimately going to be bankrupt. They're empty. There's no life there. And we don't know how to communicate that with conviction. And we're scared to talk about it because we're afraid that people are going to object to what we're saying. Well, here's an interesting question. When you study the life of Paul, ask yourself this question. Does he ever concern himself with the consequences of his preaching? (laughs) Never! Some places, what happens? People get saved. Other places, he preaches to thousands, and a few are saved. Other places he goes there and people say, hmm, we want you to come back and preach on this. Other places, what happens to him? They flog him and beat him. We lose our nerve. Because we're not grounding what we believe in, in, in the Word and what's true and rather in sometimes the things we're trying to do to win this generation. And there's a fine line here of trying to strike this balance. And thinking, just thinking about what it is that we're up to. 
We need to understand the age in which we live in. We need to understand the philosophies which grip this generation. And we better have a Christian philosophy to take place when that idea gets taken away. One of the biggest problems that we have amongst conservative theologians and schools in this country is their disdain for philosophy. Classically understood, philosophy has been the handmaiden to theology. And the reason why we need to do philosophy is because what we're dealing with for the most part is skepticism. And skepticism is a species of philosophy. And if you don't understand a little bit about how it works, you cannot identify it. So we need to offer a philosophy that's superior. We need to offer a Christ philosophy, a view of reality, a view of the world that is grounded in what's true, a view that is rational, that is connected with logic and reason, which is why tomorrow my wife will be doing a lecture on what? Logic. Now that's not typically a kind of class that you're going to get at a Christian conference. Why? Because Christians assume that they think well. Norman Geisler is a professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He's arguably one of the greatest living apologists in the world. He founded our seminary. He's like the grandfather of apologetics in the United States. Okay? He's got this one quote. Of all the things I've read of Norman Geisler, and I've read a lot of his work, this is perhaps the most powerful thing he has written in all of his systematic theologies and all his works. Listen carefully. He says this. He says, unless either philosophers become biblical exegetes in our schools, or those who are now called biblical exegetes take to the pursuit of philosophy seriously and adequately, and there is a conjunction of these two things, biblical exegesis and philosophical intelligence, there can be no cessation of theological troubles for our schools, nor I fancy for the Christian church either. There could not be a more succinct, more accurate description of where we are in the church today. The reason why this is true is because spiritual warfare, for the most part, is an ideological battle. 2 Corinthians 10, chapter 3, verse uh, through 5, talks about this. That your chief weapon in this battle is what? Taking an idea captive and bringing it, making it captive to Jesus Christ. How do you take an idea captive? Because ideas aren't material things. How do you take an idea captive? You've got to have a greater idea. And if your mind is diseased and feeble, and you cannot think... Number one, you're not going to be able to handle the word of truth because the object of the intellect is truth. And number two, you're not going to be particularly good at spiritual warfare. And in our age, it seems to me like that is intensifying. You know? You think that putting, as I said to these people, you think putting black markers under here on our football players and typing John 3.16 is going to win the cultural battle? Folks, we have, we have got to really, really think about this. And I, I don't want to leave you guys exasperated each other this evening. Okay? Because then I'm not being a Christian brother to you. I want to say to you, okay, that you have an opportunity this weekend to drink a little bit deeper of the things of the Lord. In fact, at this church, this is what Jeremy is constantly trying to do. Because really, that's what you have to do. This is, this is God's word. It's His letter to us. Astonishing. Would that we would read it. And know it. And, and consume it. I, I'm, I'm preaching to myself now. That I would know this thing. But not just that I know this thing. I know how this and the ideas in here intersect with the ideas out there. And where, the, where there's conflict and how it works and what questions I can ask when people show up at my door. And not just turn my nose up at the Jehovah's Witnesses of the Mormons 
and invite them in and say, come, let's talk about these things. And go to my skeptical friend and have a little bit of an understanding of what skepticism is and ask him some, some questions about skepticism. For example, have you ever noticed that a skeptic is never skeptical about his skepticism? Isn't that interesting? See, because that philosophy is ultimately bankrupt and it's ultimately self-defeating. Why? Because it starts off on the wrong foot. It starts off assuming that as finite creatures that we can have, you know, absolute knowledge. Well, that's a stupid place to start. Pretty obvious that we don't know everything, okay? So we might know some things. Fine, I might not know other things. Good, that's a good place to start your philosophy. Yeah, but you don't know these things. Yeah, but just because I don't know those things doesn't mean I'm going to be skeptical about everything now. That's the kind of logic that passes off at the schools as being intellectually sophisticated. And now young teenagers eat it up. And they come back stroking their chins as if they're wise. Well, that's just true for you, you know. There is no absolute truth. They say stupid things like that. At the university where it's passed off as being this sort of highly emotive, subjective culture where you know, there's an abandonment of truth. And we have guys pounding the pulpit and say, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the truth, you know, the Bible is the word of God, which is certainly true. But the culture out there is going, yeah, well, that's just true for you. So what difference does it make if you've got great expository preaching that's exegetically sound in a postmodern culture where there's just, there's no handle on what truth even is? That's why philosophy is important. And you ignore it at your own peril. I hope that what I've done in this evening is get us to just for a moment stop and think and see what's going on in the church. Because let me ask you a question. Here's a question which I have to deal with all the time. With apologetics events, why is it that we, have, we don't have as much interest in attendance as, say, for example, other events? Why, for example, if Beth Moore was coming into town... <clears throat> There will probably be a couple hundred women here. And what are you going to get? Probably another series of women's conferences on self-esteem and blah, 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 blah. Now, I've got no problem with conferences which deal with self-esteem. and I, I'm not saying that. But that's the meat and potatoes. And it doesn't change. Would that there would be some women who would come into amongst those women and say, look, this is good, but we're going to have to start thinking now. Why? Because I'm going to influence my kids, and my kids are going to go to these colleges to become engineers and doctors. And if I can't think through these things, I'm not going to equip them to do it, which means unlikely they're going to be able to, and what's going to happen to them? It's not rocket science, people. Hey, but we love the Lord. Yes, yet that might not be true. We can have big hearts for Jesus, but we better have big minds for Him as well. Your challenge this weekend is to allow that process to happen. Drink deep with the classes, ask questions, start reading, consider going to conferences, pester Jeremy with questions about stuff on learning us. Pray that God would enliven you so that your whole being gets changed. That you're not a person who just becomes content with just vegging out. That you know you would just be interested in the world and interested in the, how these things are working. Folks, we go, this isn't a rehearsal. We don't get a second crack at this. This is it. I'm 40 now. If I'm lucky, I might get another 40 years. You know? And when I'm 43, just like Halton over there, okay, I want to be in the same condition that he's in. I want to be on my game. Full of love, full of life. Not a, I don't want to be Ernest Hemingway sticking a barrel of a gun in my mouth. Who at the end of his philosophy and his modern thinking was asking himself that question, why, why should I not just shoot myself 
Which is what he, which is what he did. He just lived his worldview out. Well, that's a great, that's a great worldview. Man, tell these young people, if you want atheism, go and read the atheists. Because you know what's down there? It's dark, and it's a cul-de-sac, and it's ugly, and there's no hope, and there's futility, and cynicism, and bitterness. Go and read their own works. Who do we have? I think I ended my sermon about 15 minutes ago. But folks, I can only implore you as a brother in Christ, use this opportunity, use this weekend, drink deep of it, go out and, 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 and on Monday continue with the process. Read good stuff, be involved, pray for the persecuted church, find out what's going on with the persecuted church and support them. Pray for Christian American soldiers to have the courage to share their testimony. Equip others to to engage the Muslims. Man, pray for the salvation of the Muslims by the thousands. Live the life which God has called you to. Because once you start doing it, you're going to think, what on earth was I doing back there? Watching television? Football? No, I watch sport and all that, but you know what I'm getting at here? Don't fall foul of this. It sneaks in this complacency. I remember, I I think back of the things when in in South Africa, and I I didn't speak up. And I go, Lord, I, I said nothing. And I knew that it was wrong, even as a young man. I saw black policemen beat up black guys so badly. And white policemen do the same thing. And I stood by. Said nothing. Asked no questions. But man, I love Jesus. Hmm. Go to an abortion clinic. As uncomfortable as it may be to you. Just visit one. Even if it's just to pray. If you don't have the courage to speak to those people. It will change your life. It will change your life. Folks, it's all there before us. You can choose to be a part of Christ's glorious work, but He doesn't say to you, show up there and just, you know, if you love me, that's sufficient. No, He doesn't say that. He says to you, you need to show yourself approved. Now, He can use a donkey if He so chooses, and He uses many donkeys in the church, okay? And I love them, even when it pains me to do so, I have to, because Jesus also loved me when I was a donkey. Sometimes my wife still thinks I'm a donkey. She still loves me, that's okay. But it's not an excuse to remain that way. Hopefully I've exhorted you enough now. Please don't leave, you're exasperated. Hopefully you're, you're filled with some... Something now that's got inside you that wants to do something with your Christian life. Allow the transformation of the mind to happen. Allow the transformation of your heart to happen and do something with it. And it's going to begin with you actually learning and studying and reading and finding out and discovering and engaging people. And be mindful of what's going on in the church. Pay attention to these things because they sneak in and they steal the gospel from us. And they steal away the conviction of the power of this message. We begin to lose our nerve. Don't lose your nerve. Don't lose your nerve. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this evening, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless our weekend, that you would fill our hearts and minds with your glorious truth, that we would live radical lives for you, Lord. Not because we're trying to be cool people, but, Lord, because you are. You are the radical one. You are the revolutionary. You are the giver of life. You you cannot be conquered by death, Lord. You come to us and you save us from ourselves and you show us the way to truth 
and you give us the Holy Spirit to help us through these things, and you've written this glorious word of yours, and you've given it to us, and you're, you've given us a creation with screams of your existence, and yet we are silent often, Lord. Teach us, Lord, how to speak up, to talk to people about your glorious love, and to live it, Lord. I pray that you bless this conference, that you would bless this church, that you bless the leadership. And we pray for the persecuted church, Lord, our brothers and sisters in the world who are suffering because of their faith. And we thank you most of all for Jesus and what he's done for us. In Christ's name, amen.